Want to stand with Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Get her iconic descent collar in the form of a pin, necklace, or earrings. Descent Pins donates 50% of profits to causes you love, like the Bronx Freedom Fund and Planned Parenthood. Take 20% off today with code HARPERS at DescentPins.com. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. For hundreds of years, the Comoro Islands, which are northwest of Madagascar, have been a point of connection between Africa, Asia, and Europe. This history has shaped the archipelago's unique culture, but it has also starkly divided the islands into haves and have-nots. One of the islands, Mayotte, became an overseas department of France in 2011, and therefore benefits from the French social safety net and European Union membership. In the wake of a series of environmental catastrophes, the economy of the independent Union of the Comoros has collapsed, and the country's citizens have sought to make the short yet potentially fatal boat journey to Mayotte. As the effects of wars, climate change, and political oppression across Africa and the Middle East have intensified, non-Comorians have also begun to seek asylum in Mayotte rather than try to reach Europe via the Mediterranean. In the January issue, Tommy Trencher describes this ongoing crisis, which has been worsened by rising anti-immigrant sentiment and draconian security measures. I spoke with Trenchard about life on the Comoros and how this dire situation is a microcosm of the global climate catastrophe. So you cite the fact that the Comoros are among the world's least visited countries. How did you originally come across this story? Um, well, I've, as a journalist, I've been based in, in Africa for the past seven years. So I try to, I try to keep an eye on, on what's going on on the continent. And yeah, I, the Comoros had always sort of seemed an intriguing place that I knew very little about. But then in 2018, there was a um, there was a series of of major riots on Mayotte, uh, anti-immigration riots, that uh, that brought brought the island to a standstill. And there was just a little flicker of of media attention. A few pieces came out, and that was when I started to to look into what was happening there in more detail. And yeah, did slowly began to. To, to uncover this this huge crisis that seemed to be un, unfolding almost completely out of view. Yeah, I mean, part of the crisis, as you say, rather beautifully, is that this is a microcosm of what is coming for the rest of the world, where there's been this serious environmental decline, there's a migrant crisis, people are trying to just survive and um, the people who are on land in Mayotte that have resources, that have money, that have jobs are taking an absolutely cruel, very aggressive approach to keeping migrants out. Can you briefly touch on the environmental decline in the Comoros? Yeah. Because uh, so much of this is stuff that is familiar yet totally specific to the islands. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's the environmental factors behind this uh, behind this massive exodus, just really overwhelming. Um, 
in the end, we ended up focusing mostly on Mayotte in, in the story, and it wasn't possible to go into too much detail on this stuff. But um, during the, the first few decades after independence, roughly 80% of the forests in the Comoros were cut down in particular cloud forests and hydrologists say that yeah these used to soak up uh, a huge amount of water from from moisture in the air from clouds and their their destruction has drastically reduced the um the island's river systems to the point where now only about one in four of the rivers that existed 50 years ago is still flowing all year round and this has had like a series of, of knock-on effects. I mean, firstly, in parts of the island, it's just made life extremely difficult for families trying to get by and and keep their kids' kind of clothes washed and just have enough to drink. Um, I visited villages where the, the communal tap was only switched on once every three days and people were having to get by with around 20 liters a day, families, I mean. But anyway, the, this has had a huge impact on farmers in combination with um, with what they see as drastically altered weather patterns over the last decade or so. Longer dry patches, fewer but more violent storms. The removal of the trees has not only stripped away the water, but it's also left the topsoil exposed, leading to huge erosion of the farmland. And this has made life a lot harder for what is still a heavily kind of uh, agrarian society. Roughly 80% of Comorians rely on subsistence agriculture for, for their survival. But the reason I, I think the, the microcosm analogy works so well is just, I mean, island ecosystems are inherently fragile and you start to see the impacts of like unsustainable resource use a lot sooner and a lot more dramatically than you do elsewhere. The islands have a rapidly growing population and a limited land area. And every year, the, the farmers' plots of land get smaller as they get passed down from generation to generation to the point that it's it's started to become a real struggle. Um, there are organizations desperately trying to, to replant those forests, but it is an uphill battle. And then, of course, you on the other on the other side of the microcosm, you have this incredibly stark contrast. I mean, so close you can see one from the other. The um, we're with between Mayotte and Anjouan, and it it really it really hits hits home just the extent to which kind of geopolitics and the global economy have have left out have have left some countries completely out in the cold. Yeah, it's fascinating to know that France is still choosing to hold on to one part of these islands as a as a department. How does that imbalance reflect larger post-colonial issues? Like what, aside from sending down uh, guys who used to be bashing in the heads of uh, yellow vest protesters, what sort of resources is France sending people on my out? So yeah, this this is interesting. Like a lot of people I spoke to, 
were slightly confused about why exactly France is so determined to keep Mayotte because it, uh, yeah, it, it is a huge drain on resources. France has been pumping, pumping funding in increasingly, especially since it became an official overseas territory in 2011. And not just France, it, it's also as a, as a bona fide part of the European Union, it's also been receiving a lot of funding from Brussels. And the combination of the two is the reason for, or primarily the reason for its stark contrast b- b- between there and the Comoros. The one, one thing that there, there wasn't space for in the piece is that uh, France, I mean, because this is kind of a problem that seems, I mean, it's, it's a hard one to solve. The problems in the Comoros are going to keep getting more and more extreme. It's hard for a country so isolated and tiny to develop any significant industries and the population is just going to keep on growing so you start to ask yourself like well how, how does this end and will, will this just continue indefinitely until the situation on Mayotte implodes but um, yeah France has also recently massively stepped up its uh, its foreign foreign aid to the Comoros Last year, it uh, in fact, while I was out there in in Mayotte, it was announced that France had increased its funding of the Comorian government by ten times, in the hope that by developing the Comoros, that might be the only way to address the the continuing flow of people towards its uh, its its territory. And are there other sorts of resources, say, for development, or is it only just we got to protect this one little parcel of land that we still have in Africa. I mean, what sort of development funds are there besides these security measures? Like, are are there? Yeah, well, it's it's not just security. I mean, obviously, France spends a lot on its um, on its security in in Mayotte and its uh, its its marine and terrestrial patrols. There are just a constant, ongoing machine. But in terms of the funding I was talking about to the to the Comoros, to to Anjouan and Grand Comor and Moeli, it, it is there is some aimed at the defense sector, and they they want to help the Comorian authorities to to crack down on people leaving. But most of that money is targeted at development, at uh, education, health care, and the like. What is a day like? for someone who just can't work or isn't being paid on Anjouan or another one of these islands where they're, they really can't get by? Well, I guess I, I'll, I'll take you through both if that would be helpful. Um, sure. On Anjouan, the real problem is that with agriculture crumbling, and almost no job opportunities elsewhere. There's simply nothing to do. You see people just sitting around on on the street corners or down at the beach, and there's just a real sense that, that there's so little hope for change, it seems. Like everybody's goal is to get out. Everybody talks about it. Mayotte is such a huge presence in in the lives of those on Anjouan, um, everyone has family there. Everyone has has friends and relatives there. So it's just this presence hanging over everything. For for those who do have a job on Anjouan, it's it can be little better. I mean, Onzadin, who was the main character in my story, has had a job for a couple of years at a at a government run school, 
and has yet to receive his first paycheck, which was something I found just mind blowing when I, yeah, when I, when I found out that, that this was actually a common practice in the Comoros. So, um, life there is really, really tough. And, and then on the other side, on Mayotte, you have remarkably similar problems um, for the people who make it over there safely. Again, there are very few jobs. Just the labor market is now kind of swamped by the the vast numbers of people coming in. And it largely runs on, on kind of family connections. Onzadine was lucky. He had a lot of family there already, 22 members of his family already in Mayotte. So he'd been able to find uh, the odd the odd days work here and there. But for many people, life in Mayotte is similar to, to how it was on the Comoros, just sitting around desperately hoping, hoping for work and trying to avoid the French police, which is pretty much the primary occupation of every undocumented Comorian and places huge limitations on their freedom to move around and, and live a live a free and normal life. But I suppose the one difference between the two and the reason why people still do go, even though the conditions on my out themselves are, are, are terrible, is that at least that there is the possibility of change. If you do get a job, you'll be paid a hell of a lot more than, than you would have been in the Comoros. And yeah, you can earn the kind of money that can can drag your, your family out of poverty and yeah, open up, open up opportunities to, to do something else with your life. You talk about a family that has moved there and the father gets deported, but then comes back. And so there seems to be this kind of um, this free sort of because it, it, it's not that big of a distance between these islands. So even if you do happen to be caught, there is the opportunity to come back. However, that boat journey can be extremely harrowing. It can be fatal. So what sorts of stories did you hear about making that journey? Because at once it seems like people had this feeling that it's, oh, it's not that far. I can do it at any time. That's my only hope. But at, by another token, it's extremely dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely a risk. Um, so since since the French government put in place visa requirements for Comorians, they've all had to travel in in secret, apart from the very lucky few who who can get those visas. And that involves taking tiny little fiberglass boats called quasa-quasas, which in themselves are not inherently unseaworthy, but they're invariably packed with way too many people. There are never any life jackets. For a big part of the year, the winds are very strong in the region and the seas can be rough in the channel between the two islands. So even though they are only only a few dozen miles apart, yeah, up to up to 50,000 people might have died uh, since 1994. I spoke to a lot of people who, um, yeah, who had either lost, lost loved ones or who had survived terrible tragedies in that thin strip of sea. In fact, in, in Anjouan, the those families were everywhere. This this has been going on for such a long time that almost everyone knows a friend or family member who 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 didn't make it. There was one woman in particular whose story was was extremely harrowing. Her her portrait actually made it into the story, but uh, her, her 
her testimony didn't. Her family had been split between Mayotte and Anjouan at the time the visa regulations were put in place in, in 1995. And at the time, she was back in the Comoros visiting family and found herself then stuck, unable to go and rejoin the rest of her family in Mayotte. So she had to resort to the Kwasa Kwasas. Like, uh, yeah, she would have been among the first of tens of thousands to follow in the, in the next next couple of decades. But she set off in a boat containing 46 people. And before they reached Mayotte, the engine cut out and left them adrift. And they, they were not close enough to, to kind of paddle to shore. They had very few supplies. Nobody had a life jacket. Uh, the sea was rough. And the boat started flooding with fuel from the broken engine. Mm. And she she ended up, but she was at sea for ten days before being rescued after a fishing boat spotted them. And during those ten days, forty out of the forty six passengers had died, including three of her family members. And she recounted how every morning the survivors would have to throw overboard the the bodies of those who had died during the night just to make the boat more buoyant and to increase their own chances of survival. And you could see talking to her how that has impacted. I mean, she's now in her 30s. This was a long time ago, Mm. but you can absolutely see how she's still living with the trauma of, of that event even now. But really, Anjouan is just an island full of horror stories. You have People whose boats caught fire when the when when petrol ignited and all had to dive over the edge. You have stories of pirate attacks and shark attacks, and uh, it's uh, yeah for for such a small island with a population. I mean, the Comoros has a population of around eight hundred thousand, but Anjouan is just two or three hundred. So it's uh, yeah that the scale of this of this crisis proportionally is is massive. Do you feel like the fact that this trauma is largely undealt with because there is no, you know, you're not supposed to be there, does that also negatively impact people who do survive and their ability to really become a part of society separate from these economic issues, this power imbalance that's going on? You mean when people make it to Mayotte? Yes, yes, but have experienced like a significant trauma. Yeah, absolutely. One of the main reasons people people go to Mayotte in the first place is the the health system, which in Anjouan is uh, is falling to pieces. Uh, So people go for even the most basic of conditions. So there there would be more mental health facilities on on Mayotte. Though, nevertheless, I spoke to to many migrants who said that they couldn't get treated there because they didn't have any documentation, that they don't have to be residents or citizens of France. They can be Comorian, but they still need a birth certificate, they said, to, mm-hmm. to receive treatment. So, so that side of things is, yeah, is difficult. But absolutely, the, the, the whole um, Anjouane diaspora there, I think, lives with, with this kind of collective, collective trauma that yeah, is, is, is just ongoing. The one thing I suppose is that because everyone's been through it together, there's a lot of support. Like people are very close and families are incredibly close. 
but yeah, no, that certainly life is not easy for for those who have survived these events. Given that the number of people who are trying to reach Mayotte, is there the possibility that the problems that drove them from Anjouan or other places might begin to manifest in Mayotte? Eventually, the island will reach capacity and then overcapacity, and they'll be right back where they started. It's it's certainly a possibility, and if you talk to the French administration there, they will tell you that that's already happened, that that the island is now at breaking point because of this influx of migrants. I think you need to take that with a pinch of salt, that the context is very different. But absolutely, Mayotte is under strain. Its own population, I mean, even aside from, from the incoming migrants, has exploded like hugely in the last few decades. And even though it is a lot wealthier than the Comoros, it's still one of the poorest parts of France. And um, yeah, there is a huge amount of pressure on services, on schools and the healthcare system where the, the statistic is that 70% of, of new births are to Comorian parents. And so you have the, the local French population saying that they're having to like leave and go back to metropolitan France. They, they say they're being pushed out and displaced. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not impossible to envisage a future where Mayotte does reach... I mean, the same kind of tipping point that the Comoros has, as long as it's a part of France and the European Union, it'll have that that kind of safety net. But it will certainly be interesting to see what what happens in the years to come. And you briefly mentioned that there are some non-Comorans who have started turning up on Mayotte and some from Yemen or Syria or the Congo what is their experience like, given that it's probably easier to identify them as, you know, not being from around here? Yeah, well, their, their experience is different in many ways. And it's a really interesting new trend ever since the EU kind of clamped down on the, the traditional route through Libya and across the Mediterranean and started sending sending people back there to, to kind of overcrowded and deeply unpleasant detention facilities in Libya, people have started to realize that there's actually a far easier way into Europe. And that is this tiny little island that no one had really heard of, but is becoming increasingly popular. I mean, especially for for migrants in mainland Africa, it's a lot easier to, for, from Congo, say, it's a lot easier to just get a bus across Tanzania and a quick, uh, well, maybe not quick, but then a boat ride over to Mayotte and you can make an asylum claim on French soil. The, the Comorians coming don't generally um, apply for asylum. They they know they won't get it, though their, their country is messed up in lots of ways. They're, most of them aren't actively fleeing violence or persecution, whereas the migrants from other nations know that if they, yeah, if they can reach Mayotte, they can put in an, an, an asylum claim. And if that comes through, then they'll be free to travel to metropolitan France and, and Europe. So there, yeah, there have been a, a people turning up from a far wider range of places than, the, the, than we'd seen in the past, from kind of Sri Lanka to the Middle East and, and Central Africa. And their situation is... Um, I mean, it's different. So while the Comorians live 
kind of in in the shadows, those who haven't managed to get some kind of residency paper. Um, the asylum seekers are not necessarily on the run from the authorities. They are allowed to stay there until their their applications have been processed. The problem is that that can take months or years. And in the meantime, they're not allowed to work. And the allowance they receive from the government is 30 euros a month. So that's one euro a day. Mm. And it's just nowhere near enough to survive. Mayotte is actually one of the more expensive parts of France, given the, the sort of small island economy, everything's imported. So the asylum seekers I spoke to were really at their wits' end. Like if they tried to work, the the police would would come and seize their things and take them away. And if they didn't, they had to try and survive on one euro a day. And there was a real sense of desperation. While I was there, one one Congolese asylum seeker couldn't take it anymore and committed suicide, which is tragic to think that he'd come all the way from from Eastern Congo, a place ravaged by decades of, of conflict, and he'd made it all the way to French soil only to um, only to take his own life there. Yeah. There are plenty of parts of Europe, in Europe, that have similar problems with making asylum seekers wait, often for years at a time, in detention centers that are overcrowded, perhaps not safe, is there any sort of provision on Mayotte for them? Or is it only, is it just sort of like you have to go out and uh, try to find accommodations for one euro a night? Or is there some sort of facility for them? So to be honest, I would have to, um, I would have to double check. But yeah, one, one thing a lot of them were saying is that they would rather be put in camps and, and looked after if it was, if they're going to be prevented from from working to to support themselves, then they wanted to, they actively wanted to be kept in in some kind of refugee camp or or detention center until their cases had been resolved. Their their plight often gets overlooked in the face of the the sheer scale of the the Comorian influx. So it's something you you often don't hear a lot about. And yeah, I think to an extent their, their troubles fly under the radar. You know, you mentioned that you have been reporting in Africa for several years now. How does this situation compare to other countries in Africa that have, you know, have been dealing with migration, places like South Africa, Ethiopia, where there are centers of wealth and development going on, usually thanks to Indian or Chinese companies? So... I guess, how does this situation, aside from the, the quirk of history that it happens to be part of Europe, how, how does this overall situation compare with other parts of Africa? Um, well, I think it really is kind of unique. Um, I mean, I, I visited refugee camps in half a dozen countries on the continent in recent years, but in all of them, people have been fleeing, um, usually warfare, I mean, in the refugee camps in in Uganda, people have been pouring across the border from South Sudan and Congo, and in Kenya, you've got people fleeing from Somalia. 
I mean, even even um, a, another main source of, of departing migrants in Africa is Eritrea, where they have universal and unlimited conscription and an incredibly repressive government. Mm-hmm. What I find unique about the Comoros is that the problems there are uh, they're, they're, they're less dramatic. There, there is no war. There's no kind of exorbitant crime rate. Um, there, you don't even have the extreme poverty that you have in in parts of Africa. What you have is just such a um, such a depressing lack of um, any any kind of sense of hope. Such a deep stagnation. And in terms of how, how the refugee situation itself differs from from other places in the continent. I think one major difference is the fact that these migrants are having to live on the run. I mean, in other countries, refugee camps are are set up and there is some kind of infrastructure in place that that people can can go to. In the Comoros, you have the opposite. You have people needing to get as far away from the authorities as possible and to try and make a living in in secret and it it kind of cast the whole situation into a different light i think i mean for example go to go to the refugee camps in northern kenya and you've got a few dozen different aid agencies there on the ground providing for these people and helping them kind of get set up and taking care of their immediate needs in in Mayotte, you you have nothing and of course one one other major distinction is yeah is the the, the geographical one that 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 you're actually in France and it's i kept having to kind of pinch myself while i was there to remind myself that yeah the, these conditions i was seeing were not in some kind of African post-conflict scenario. This was genuinely on French soil and the level of deprivation among the, the migrant community there was as extreme as, as any I'd experienced, I think. Considering that what's happening on these islands is sort of a, a tale of things to come or what could come if we don't deal with climate change, if we don't proactively deal with environmental decline, how could these islands be incorporated into a larger economic system that is independent of the things that have caused this complete environmental damage that has exacerbated these conditions that make it untenable to live? So I think it's really, really hard to say. And, and I mean, it's not just the environmental factors. Like uh, a lot of it comes down to, I mean, the difficulties faced by tiny um, island developing nations. It's just almost impossible to kickstart any industry there. You have no access to any raw materials, right. no access to any markets, and and no possibility to take advantage of economies of scale. Um, and it's really hard to know what a place like the Comoros can really do, like where it can go from here. People are trying to address the environmental issues, but the reality of is that to try and recreate the, the kind of ecosystem that you had in the Comoros, particularly with the cloud forest, is incredibly difficult because it's a kind of self 
self-perpetuating thing. The cloud forest itself creates its own microclimate on which it feeds, and the, the circle goes on. And once that circle's been broken, it's very hard then to plant those same species, given that there is now less water around and less shelter. Organizations are doing what they can, and a lot of trees are being planted, and that's a positive development. But it's hard to see how that's going to really affect the fundamental issue that there are just more and more people and a limited land area. And and it's not just the, the water and the soil. Um, the fishermen were, were saying the same thing, that since their parents' and grandparents' generations, it's been harder and harder for them too, just as, the, uh, as fish stocks decline. And they often pointed fingers at foreign fleets trawling illegally in their waters. But um, so I, I guess there is no quick fix for somewhere like the Comoros. Uh, at the moment, it's surviving largely on remittances from its enormous diaspora and from the aid community which is kind of keeping it afloat. But as to whether that will still be possible in another 30 years' time, um, it's, it's hard to say. Especially because these problems are going to start happening in more and more places where there has been pro- most likely irreparable environmental damage done which causes a mass exodus of people from a certain location and then there's a conflict and then again i don't want to reduce everything to this question of climate change however it's really clear that that is a huge driver here especially when the the main occupation was subsistence farming and again you're not you're not getting rich off of that you're just it's subsistence farming right so it's this yeah even the slightest sort of unbalancing of, of this very delicate system can be disastrous and something far more than just a slight imbalance happen. This is having these really serious repercussions in terms of storms, in terms of just all yeah, life is impacted. Absolutely. And the Comoros actually were hit by their worst storm in I think 50 years last year as well. But yeah, absolutely. I think something that, that, that you're really reminded of in that little archipelago is um, the extent to which the world is divided into the half that still relies on on the fruits of the earth and the sea and the other half, the more privileged half, that is somewhat detached. But in those developing nations where where people do depend heavily on agriculture, you can see things getting harder and harder in these rural villages with ever more mouths to feed and land that's been intensively farmed for for too many years. And in several places, you'll have the farmers telling you that the climate is compounding all of this. But I mean, according to the the United Nations and and others involved in in that sector, we're we're, we're seeing this all all across Southern Africa. There's been an extreme sort of on-off drought in the region for a for several years now and um yeah which which doesn't get reported as much as it ought to in in western media Mm. um but it does seem it's hard to imagine how the current model can continue to keep these countries afloat 
in years to come if current demographic and climatic and environmental trends continue as they are and if our exploitation of, of resources continues at the level it has been, it's hard to see where that's going to leave us. Yeah. My final question is more of a process question. As a white British man who is reporting on situations in African countries, how difficult is it for you to challenge pre-existing Western narratives about, you know, well, of course, a drought is just what happens in places like that. Well, of course, people are starving in these countries. What else is new? Like, how do you how do you feel that you combat that with your reporting? And how do you feel that other people who perhaps have those preconceptions, how can they begin to challenge that and understand and perhaps make you know, not not necessarily giving to an aid foundation, because again, that's like a whole other set of problems, but finding a way to think about this in a different way. Yeah. Um, well, to be honest, I I, I don't um, like. I, I feel like I do. I don't want to overthink it. Um, and with a story like this, I was keen to just talk to people on the ground and. Um, yeah, and see what they had to say. I don't necessarily think that there are many reporters out there who are, it, I mean, working on these issues who are kind of ignoring, um, yeah, who, who are imposing their bias to that extent. I mean, you never know. As a as an outsider, you you have a, a different perspective and it can be helpful in some ways and can be a hindrance in others, of course. But um I think all you can really do is to um, to talk to people and to take what they say seriously, and to to to, to kind of take things from there. And and there are also a lot of organisations who are already working on these issues, and they can be a useful source of of information and background and. So yeah, there's certainly no shortage of kind of information out there if if you if if you just ask around. So yeah, I, I guess <laughs> that was sort of a maybe too too far zoomed out question, but it is it is. I do feel like there is again because there is so much domestic news happening both in the United States and in the UK where it feels like it's almost a deliberate strategy to kind of prevent people from talking about other parts of the world and to just only focus on, oh my God, what is the new horrible thing that Boris Johnson or Donald Trump said today? Like, isn't that so crazy? You you feel you're constantly being bombarded with information, but you're not learning anything new. Yeah. And to get stories from places like Africa where there are, they're extreme, these are extreme problems that are, really hurting a lot of people to kind of break through that and get people's attention seems extremely daunting. Yeah. Well, I guess there's two things there. Firstly on, um, yeah, I, I think firstly that some of these stories in Africa can actually be refreshingly detached from the kind of, uh, claustrophobic news cycle of Trump and Johnson and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and the increased polarization that that comes with those issues, 
so in a in a funny sort of way things are i think a little simpler in africa nobody is seriously debating any of the key key notions for example in in that story i mean even the french who will play them down will uh, will will acknowledge um so in that sense i th- i think it's actually quite a refreshing change from from the the kind of domestic news that has been dominating the news cycle over the past few years but yeah on the other hand it is it can be extremely hard to place those stories and to get people to care people are very wrapped up in 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 the craziness of uh, the news in their own countries as they should be but yeah i mean i've definitely noticed i think that ever since trump's run for run for president got serious it's been harder to harder to place stories like these of uh, I, i think particularly from africa there's a kind of fatigue within the media industry and perhaps the public as well about some of these africa stories that sound a bit like you might have heard them before so it it can definitely be a challenge um it seems crazy in a way that you're know, covering a story where people are dying every day and uh you get uh, you get beaten to page 1 by Trump's latest tweet <laughs> but um that's the way of the world um and all you got to do is just yeah be persistent and keep trying and yeah i'm so grateful that uh, that Harper's took a chance on doing a 7000 word story about such an obscure part of the world that nobody is was really very aware of i mean i'm sure you'd have got more clicks on a uh, on, on a 7000 word trump story without a doubt but i think it's really important to keep giving these stories the attention they deserve and very grateful for that yeah cuz trump is at most worst case scenario 8 years but <laughs> what is coming for the rest of you know what is actually coming the question of climate change the question and literally people dying not somebody misspelling a word and in a tweet it's it's the question of what is real and what is not real yeah, so yeah. yeah that's that's what i was trying to get at before with with the the like how do you fight that bias when you are presenting a story to an editor and they're just sort of like well i feel like i heard this before like africa doesn't sell <laughs> yeah uh, well don't get me wrong I, i think it's more important than ever to cover everything that's going on in the white house and yeah i don't begrudge anyone that but yeah it i and i i don't think there's much you can really uh, re- really do to to argue your case i mean other than just spell out the story as best you can why why the reader would find it informative important and perhaps entertaining in 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 one way or another and yeah sometimes sometimes you find a receptive audience and sometimes you don't i i've certainly found it tricky pitching africa stories i think in particular to british publications in recent years but thankfully there is a, a large diversity of of options out there and for a freelancer like myself there i find there is there's generally someone who will be willing to to take a punt on on one of these stories and i mean i i suppose you you got to try as hard as you can to to avoid some of the clichés of of kind of africa journalism and try to show how things are relevant in a way that maybe people hadn't imagined 
but yeah, it's certainly no no precise art, <laughs> or if it is, I haven't learned it yet. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for 2197, visit harpers.org save. 